I'm on? How long have I been on? All right, here we go. All right, good morning again. Let's pray. Father, help me this morning deal with massive realities that affect one way or the other every soul in here. Help me unfold your mysteries that were hidden until Christ and revealed through your holy prophets and apostles. Do that through me and help us all hear with ears of delight and wonder and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is week 19 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. So here's my sermon in a nutshell. I'm going to ask the big question, historically, for this long period of time from Moses until Christ, why did God give the law? And the answer is in order to write a lesson book so that when the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead goes from the Jew outward to all the world, they also go with a book in their hand of lesson books on how to trust Him and how not to respond to Him. And so, first, let me boil down the last few weeks of what we've seen in God's gracious, merciful law that He gave to Israel on Mount Sinai. We saw that in the law itself, I am the God who delivered you out of slavery and Egypt. Have no other gods before me. And on and on and on and on. There was nothing wrong with it. It's perfect, it's good, it's holy. The problem was never with the law. It was with sin. It's with the human heart in its darkness. The same thing's true today with the gospel of Jesus. People are raised in churches. They're raised in Christian cultures. They got God's gospel, the message of mercy and grace and eternal forgiveness, and that gospel cannot save them either. Unless something happens to their sin nature. Unless they get raised spiritually from the dead. It was true under Moses, and it's true today. See, when the law was given, it did not have the ability in and of itself to give life to the people. New birth. This is how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law 
then contrary to the promises of God? Answer, certainly not. Because if a law had been given which could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so the point is that as a whole, predominantly in the giving of the law to the children of Israel, as a whole, the vast majority of them were not given life, meaning new birth, regeneration. But when it came to the law itself, there was absolutely nothing about the law and its thought structure, etc., that was wrong with it. In matter of fact, some were given life and thus were made righteous like we believers are today through Jesus Christ because they responded to the law in the way it was always to be responded to with a heart of faith. So Caleb was saved. David was saved. Jeremiah was saved. And so what I want to do first, before I ask the bigger question again, why the law? Why did he do it this way? What's God up to? Again, I just want to ponder the law briefly for the next 15 minutes to make sure that when I ask the question, we're talking about that law and God's mysterious work in history. And so the first point I want to make is this. The Apostle Paul never was, and nothing's changed in his writing, and is not an antinomian. It's a big word. Theologically, the church has been always filled with antinomians. Nomian comes from the Greek word namos, meaning law, anti, of course, is against. The idea that, oh, since we're in Jesus, the idea, don't give me any kind of sentences that say, do not commit adultery or do not do this, or do this, I'm under grace. That's antinomianism. That is not what Paul thinks. Paul never believed it. For instance, Paul writes in Romans 7, 7 to 8, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? His answer, by no means. Yet, if... It had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. So he goes to the tenth of the Ten Commandments. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he concludes in verse 12 of Romans 7. And so, the law of Moses is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so, here's Paul in Romans 7. His point is, Nothing wrong with the law. The problem is sin. The sin nature which takes the law 
makes use of that which is holy and good and righteous. And it stirs up its sin through it all the more. The problem is with people like us, not with God's law. That's Paul. We'll continue with Paul. You know this, but I want, I want to slowly read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. God, who has made us apostles competent to be ministers or servants of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul does not mean by letter there. Words that God has spoken in the law of Moses. That's not what he means. Walk by the Spirit. Clear your mind. Empty it out like Eastern mysticism. Try to forget that God says what's right and what's wrong and what's moral and immoral and ethical and unethical. Just try to get that out of your mind because you want to walk by the Spirit. That's not what Paul is driving at. His contrast between the Spirit and the, the letter is not anything about the law somehow is pitted up against the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit authored it. But what he's driving at is this. Whether or not a particular person has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, producing a heart and a desire to obey the law because they love God. Producing what the law always required called faith. That's what he means. Not the letter, but the Spirit. I trust I trust He really has my best interest at heart when He speaks. That's the Spirit as opposed to the letter. Listen to how Paul confirms this in Romans 2, verse 29. But a Jew, a true Jew, is one inwardly. And, and circumcision no, not, is a matter of the heart. Spiritually, not outward. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So he uses his term letter again. Putting it up against new birth by the Spirit, circumcised of the heart. 
And in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says it this way. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should ignore morality and God's commands. It's not what he says. We've been delivered as the law imprisoned us in our sin. We've died to that which we were held by so that we should now serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The point is that Paul's term letter, as he uses it, is not equivalent to the law. Letter refers to what a human being like all of us born into sin, remaining in sin apart from new birth, will do with God's holy, righteous law. How they will take it and misuse it and turn it into a self-righteous ladder to climb because they have not the Holy Spirit. The letter means the sinful, darkened heart's response to the law of God. Remember that great line by Paul. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the Spirit of life, new birth, has set us free from the law of sin and death because what the law could not do. Weakened by our sinful nature, the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin died. And then Paul goes on to make it clear there is nothing wrong in the structure of the law itself. It's not in conflict with the Holy Spirit because he says then, it is then through Christ with us believers who have the Spirit, that the righteous requirement of the law might now be fulfilled in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul never belittled the law in its intended meaning, but instead said stuff like this in Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law and get rid of it by this faith I'm preaching? Answer, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, that brings me to the second contemplation which is crucial biblically. And that is this term, new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant. I didn't say New Testament. That's 
whole different category. New Testament, Old Testament. I'm talking about New Covenant as opposed to Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, what's different about that covenant from the Old is that the New Covenant added regeneration. If you're in the New Covenant, you are by definition born again. If you're not born again, you are not a New Covenant person. The only change that occurs in those Old Testament texts that prophesy about the New Covenant that God will enact is the heart will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We give a taste. Jeremiah the prophet foretells 600 years before Christ this way. The Lord speaks. Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that. This is a new one. Not like that one. How is it different? My covenant that they broke. That's how it's different. But here's the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. That's the difference. The new covenant is the promise of regeneration, new birth, raising you spiritually from the dead, writing his law on the heart. The prophet Ezekiel says essentially the same thing about it. In chapter 11 of Ezekiel, verses 19 to 20, the Lord says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, hard-heartedness, callousness towards me. I will remove that from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, softness toward me. Why? I'll do this so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey 
my rules. So the new covenant, it added new birth. New birth is that which creates within us sinners real, genuine faith in the God who made us and shows mercy to us. And thus it trusts His promises in His commands. And as we've seen the last few weeks, when God gave the law through Moses to Israel, it was always a law of faith, a law to be responded to with a heart of faith. Nothing essentially is different about the structure of His mercy. Caleb grasped it. Joshua got it. So the New Testament writer says it this way, for the gospel came to us just as it came to them under Moses in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. Okay. I hope that's making some sense. One person says, yes, that's good. All right. So, here's the large question then for this morning in this journey through redemptive history. Having said that, and if that be true, then why did God give this spiritual law of faith to a predominantly unregenerate people who could not respond to it appropriately. Why did he do it? Now, that statement I just made, I, first I want to I make sure that you see that that statement is utterly biblical. In the law itself, at the end of the 40 years, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, Moses says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. He's not stupid. He didn't say, you just refused. There's a truth to that, but that's not the way Moses said it. You just refused to understand. He said, the Lord, Yahweh, did not give to you a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. God gave them the law without new birth. And yet throughout history, and even during the wilderness, there's always, Paul makes this clear, there was always a smidgen, a portion, a minority, a remnant, whom God did regenerate and saved and responded in faith 
to the law. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul, along with Moses now, looking back, this is how Paul unfolds this strange work in redemptive history of God. Romans 11, starting with verse 7. What then? Well, here it is. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Righteousness. Let me just pause. Like Paul himself. Paul's all about righteousness. As to the law, Pharisees, to zeal persecuted the church. It's a righteousness found in the law. I, Paul, was blameless. I want it. I covet it. And he looked back and saw that he was the absolute chief of sinners. You want to see sin run its course, Paul thought? Look at me. And so he writes, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Here's the, here's, the, here's the remnant within Israel. The elect obtained it, yes. But the rest of Israel were hardened. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day in, in the middle of the first century. And then he goes on. And David says in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay. Scripture's clear that God did purposefully as a whole give the law perfect, holy, righteous law to be received by faith to a people he did not regenerate for the most part. So why? Why did he do that? Why did he have it so that the vast majority of his people whom he pulled out from among all the peoples would live a millennium? And the vast majority will have no internal inclination to humble themselves appropriately to God's law called faith. The biblical answer of why he did that was so that the depth and the breadth of sin using his people Israel as an example, will run its course whether it is as you see during the biblical history of Israel up to the, the fall under the Babylonians, the constant worshiping of false gods, ignoring His laws again and again from raising up judges after judges and kings and prophets and or whether then, after that, it was, oh, we don't want that to happen anymore, and where Judaism was created, legalistic Judaism. And so God wanted the demonstration of sin in its outright rebellion, or no, I'll do that. And to take his holy, good, precious, merciful, gracious law that he's everything to them and to say, 
I'll take that law and I'll turn it into a self-righteous ladder on which I will exalt myself and climb. And thus to demonstrate sin at its peak in which finite human beings would take the only one true creator of all who has actually spoken through Moses the prophet and take his word and twist it into self-exaltation. God needs me. I don't eat lobster. No one catches me doing a morally wrong thing. I'm better than him. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector. Paul said it bluntly this way in Romans 5, verse 20. So now the law of Moses came in in order to increase the trespasses. And there are some Greek students in here that is a henna clause plus a subjunctive. It is almost always used as a purpose. And Paul means it that way. He's not just saying, well, it just kind of happened that way. He's saying the law came for the purpose to increase the trespass. And then in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul writes, did that which is good, referring to the law which is good and holy and righteous, did that which is good then bring death to me? Something wrong with the law that killed me? Answer, no, by no means. But it was sin producing death in me through what is good. And then he puts another purpose clause. It wasn't Paul's purpose. It's God's. Sin producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. And so the point is that the law gave the sinful, unregenerated heart the foothold that it needed in order to take it and turn it into a ladder and exalt its self righteousness the most outrageous sin of all legalism in Paul's own particular case in his own life he, he, he phrases it like this in Romans 7 verse 8 it was sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment and it produced in me, Paul, all kinds of covetousness. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. 
and through the commandment, which is good and holy, sin, through it, killed me. Okay, so, we've just seen God gave the law without the power to obey it with a heart of faith. He did it in order to increase sin and demonstrate how horrific it is through human history. Which leads into the third question. Then. Why did He want sin to become utterly sinful? In rebellion against Him outrightly, I don't want to follow your ways, thank you, no thank you. Or through legalism. Why did He want sin to be shown to be utterly sinful. The answer is in order that Israel would become the lesson book for the nations. And it starts with the law itself. The fifth book of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 26 states, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. And here comes another purpose clause. Do this so that it, the law, may be there for a witness against you. And it has been a witness against Israel, her history. She has abandoned God again and again and again and again and turned away. Or then during the intertestamental period, say, well, we want to do that, we'll turn to legalistic ladder climbing. And the Old Testament itself is, is, is filled and makes it clear that Israel's unbelief, lack of faith, is the reason for the disasters that have happened to her. And especially as they culminate in 587. B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem and of Solomon's temple. People carried off into foreign lands. Jeremiah was there before it happened, while it happened, and after. And God says through Jeremiah the prophet, during that time in Jeremiah 16, verses 10 to 11, and when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against Yahweh, our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord. And they have gone after other gods, and they have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me. 
and have not kept my law. And then in Jeremiah 32, while the Babylonians battering rams are knocking down the walls of Jerusalem, Jeremiah acknowledges to God that Israel did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. And therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. But Israel's punishment, it was not because Israel as a whole and the Jewish people as a whole were worse human beings than any other or any other nation or any other people. And nor did the judgments of God that you can read throughout the Old Testament happened to Israel only to teach Israel. They were there ultimately to teach Israel and all the nations of the world. So that when eventually Christ comes, suffers, dies, and rises from the dead, the gospel goes out. And all you Gentiles, white and black and pink and yellow and Chinese, whatever you are through all generations in your cultures, don't you dare turn up your nose because this is a grace for you to ask why did all these calamities happen to God's people Israel? And you'll see, for your soul's sake, it was because Israel failed to trust God. Be warned. Believe Him. The quote, a few passages. And what I'm going to quote here, from what I just said, God was up to something. History has unfolded exactly as he planned it, particularly Hebrew history recorded in the Old Testament. And he did it because he was writing a lesson book for the whole world. In Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Law of Moses, chapter 29, verses 24 to 28, we read this. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? Israel, what caused the heat of this great anger of God's? Then the people will say, 
It's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom He had not allowed to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in the book of the law of Moses. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. That's what you are to say. In Ezekiel, hundreds of years later then, writes this, Chapter 5. Because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, my people. And you have not walked in my statutes and obeyed my rules. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you. And in the sight of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt and a warning, and a horror to the nations all around you. When I, the Lord, execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebuke. But in using Israel as the lesson book, the nations of the world are to never have a smug attitude of superiority in any way. And Jeremiah the prophet makes it clear. As from the Lord he says, For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, Jerusalem. Yes. And shall you, the nations, go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord. It's those kinds of passages in the Scripture that along with hanging out with Jesus in His resurrection formed the Apostle Paul's theology of the lesson book. For instance, when he writes in Romans 3.19, 
Now we know that whatever the law Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, not just the Jews, but so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world may be held accountable to God. So when you look at the gravity of sin and the depravity of the human heart demonstrated in the unbelief and the rebellion of Israel, you are looking into the mirror. For which Christ save you from. The point of those Old Testament passages and as Paul interpreted them is that the Gentiles, as they receive the gospel, it's not just a, a page. Okay, all these guys signed their name. I saw Jesus resurrected. They have a book. They have stories that they're to contemplate and consider Israel's horrifying history. And they should ask, why is it that, that Israel for so long, his people, even surviving to today, why should they be punished so severely? And thus Israel's failure to walk by faith and God's grace is meant to serve as a merciful warning to Christians from all the nations of the earth. And so, with the gospel, with the preaching of the historical event of Christ, His death and His resurrection, it comes with a lesson book. Lessons of faith and triumph so you can get Hebrews chapter 11. How did that prostitute trust God so much? Rahab. And on and on. And lessons of warning. So the question is that I do wonder how many of us Christians are afraid to preach like Paul preached? particularly to baptized professing Christians. Let me give you a taste on how Paul preached. He had no fear of it, and I trust he grasped the gospel better than any of us. I trust that he really does believe in grace, in justification by grace and through faith alone, apart from any works. And so... The church is planted in Corinth, and he's preaching to them. He's writing to professing Christians this way in 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 1. For church, I do not want you to be unaware, Christians, that our fathers, and these are Gentiles, Gentiles look at 
the Hebrew Scripture as their fathers. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink, miraculously water from a rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, church, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things in the books of Moses took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Church, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell dead in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You see, church, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. None of that would make any sense without the book, without the Hebrew Scripture. Final question. In what sense, then, was Israel a lesson book until Christ came? Because that's essentially how Paul puts it in Galatians 3.19, when he writes, Why the law then? Answer, it was added for the sake of transgressions until the offspring should come, Christ, to whom the promise had been made. So I think what Paul is driving at there is that with the coming of Christ, Enough history, Israel's history, enough time, enough rebellion and enough of God's judgment and calamities have come upon unbelieving Israel and thus recorded in their history books. And since the last writing of the Scripture in about 
430 years before Jesus was born, enough time had elapsed for the birth of Judaism and the birth of the legalistic Judaism. So that Paul will then say in Galatians, in the fullness of time, it's ready. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law. And so as the Jewish people heard the gospel on Pentecost, more and more are saved, coming to faith in Christ, they're becoming new covenant people, and then eventually the gospel of the resurrection of Christ is going out from them to the Sumerians and then to the rest of the world. They go holding with them Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and what they have spoken and the warnings they have given and the promises innumerable and they proclaim all of God's promise to you is yes and it's amen because his son Jesus Christ purchased it. And so Paul says, until Christ, he means that strange, peculiar work of God in emphasizing Israel is during that period in writing a lesson book. It is now over. The gospel goes. You with me? Just a little bit more. So I want you to feel as if Paul came into this room. And let's check and see if our idea of Christianity would receive his words as absolute. Makes sense. Because Paul used the lesson book of glorious examples of faith and warning all the time. So I'm going to grab from Romans 11. And your Gentiles say, I know we got a few Jews in here who love Jesus, but you're a Gentile like the Romans. And here's what Paul says to you as a Gentile believer. But if in rehearsing this history of God's strange works in redemptive history, if some of the branches, Jews, were broken off, and you, a Gentile, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, the salvation tree, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Here's Paul's statement. Christian, do not be arrogant toward the branches the Jews that remain in unbelief. If you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root, the Jews, supports you. Then you will say to me, well, Paul, branches were broken off so that, that I might be grafted in. That's true. But remember, 
They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, you remain, you stand through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the, the natural branches, neither will He spare you if you rebel and go against Him and walk the other way and don't trust Him. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen in unbelief. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness by walking in faith. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So what I want to do as we are preparing our hearts to receive the cup representing Jesus' blood, the bread representing His body. This is the cup, the blood of the new covenant. As new covenant people, I want to invite one more preacher into this pulpit to help us prepare our hearts, who is a master at using the lesson book to preach the gospel to professing believers. So hear the word of the Lord from the writer to the Hebrews. Now, church, Moses was... He was faithful in all of God's house as a servant in order to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, our Savior, He's faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And therefore, church, as the Holy Spirit says, today, right now, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness under Moses. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I, God, was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And so, dear, beloved Christian, take care. Take care lest, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But here's what you do. 
you fellowship. You exhort one another every day, as long as it's called it's today. So that's what you do. And you do it for this reason, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because here's the truth. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So as it is said, today, at this moment, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard the voice and yet they rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt who were led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? whose bodies fell dead in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest? It was those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And therefore, believer, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to enter it. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it came to us just as it came to them. But the message that they heard, it didn't benefit them because they did not respond with hearts of faith when they heard. Oh, believer, for we, we who have believed, we enter that rest. Why? Because the Lord Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for such a holy book. Old and New Testament. We thank you for your mysterious ways. For we have seen through your apostles that it's all pointing to your Son and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is you, Lord Jesus, who purchased not just 
the penalty for our sin to remove it and purchased our faith, but you purchased our perseverance to the end. And that's why we pay attention to your holy lesson book. You are good. Continue to work in us, your children. You must stand.